I love that song. Thank you, choir, and thank you, Brandon. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. We're going to talk this morning about the responsibility of the believer. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that uh, beginning August the 8th, we go to two Bible study hours at 8.15 and at 11, and worship will be at 9.30. And so I want to encourage you to begin to get your head in, in that direction, and I appreciate the many classes that are shifting to 8.15, which gives us room uh, for new classes and for new people that are coming and will come. And uh, it is going to be a positive thing for us as we try to reach more people and touch more lives of people in this community and in this region, and uh, I look forward to us worshiping in the middle. We'll sandwich worship in the middle of uh, two great Bible study times, so I, I'm looking forward to that, which begins on August the 8th. Paul, writing to the Philippians, a church that he dearly loved, said, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Much of what we talk about today is going to be focused on verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It seems that some people get more out of their salvation than others. That they embrace and engage with God in a deeper and more significant way than other people do. And yet we all got the same Savior when we were saved. We all have the same Holy Spirit living within us as a believer. We all have the same access to the throne of God. But for some, salvation seems to work better than others. And many of you know what I'm talking about because you'll know somebody that is on track and focused in their Christian life, and then, and then you'll know somebody else has had equal opportunities, and yet they seem to always be derailed, always seem to be losing focus, always seem to be needing to be propped up, not building on the foundation and we know from 1 Corinthians 3 that there is no other foundation been laid except the foundation of Christ and so God has given us this foundation but we are to pay attention to what we build on that foundation now that word work out is a present middle imperative and it means to bring to completion it doesn't mean fleshly effort it doesn't mean trying harder. It doesn't mean making resolutions. It means that as God has worked in you, you and I are responsible to help bring to completion what God started in us. 
We are to cooperate with what God is doing in our lives and wants to do in our lives. We are to continue what was started. Literally, one way you can translate that is keep working down, keep digging down, get down to what it's really all about. Work out your salvation. In other words, put your position into practice. Positionally, you are in Christ, but put that into practice in your daily living. Positionally, you are seated with the Father. Positionally, you are sinless, but live a blameless life. You will never be sinless until you get to heaven, but you can be blameless. Now, see, what God is trying to do is say, here's what I've given you. Now, let it show out in your life. Let it show forth. Let it shine out. He talks about shining his lights. Let it shine out in and through your life. In other words, let the fruit of the Spirit come to the surface. Bear fruit in your life. The imagery is, is numerous in the New Testament about how our salvation is supposed to be worked out. Now notice Paul does not say work towards your salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He doesn't even say work at your salvation. He just says, work out your salvation. And in, in, let me just make a note here of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. There are two references there to works. One reference is works that are condemned. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And all Paul is telling us there is that you cannot work your way to God. You cannot do enough good deeds to be saved. It's not going to be like a guy I witnessed to, and he said, well, you know, he said, I kind of look at it like this. He said, there's these heavenly scales, and if you're good outweighs your bad, you get to go to heaven. I said, well, Isaiah says your righteousness is as filthy rags. That means if you're good 24-7 every day of your life, if you help little old ladies across the street, if you support every little organization, if you work and volunteer for every good organization in this world, you still won't get to heaven. You can't get there by good works. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. So I cannot work my way into God's favor. Salvation is from beginning to end the grace of God. God gracing me with the awareness that I am a sinner and gracing me with a Savior and gracing me with a Spirit that enables me to live the life that He's called me to live. So one work is condemned. Your salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. But the second one is encouraged. But he says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So I don't work for salvation, but once I get saved, I need to be working for God. I need to be putting my hands to the plow. I need to be using the spiritual gifts that God has given me. I need to be functioning on all cylinders like I'm supposed to be functioning as a believer. So let's look at the exhortation that he gives us. He gives us an exhortation about our responsibility. And if you look at these phrases in verse 12, your own. And then Paul talks about in my presence and in my absence. Now, now put those things together. What Paul is saying is, don't just behave when I'm around. First of all, it is continuous. 
My working out my salvation has nothing to do with being at church. It has to do how I live when I'm away from church. It's easy to be a Christian at church. It's easy to learn the songs and to sing them. It's easy to clap when the minister of music tells you to clap. It's easy to stand up when we ask you to stand up. It's easy to bow your head when we ask you. I mean, you can come to church and almost be in neutral. And by the way, some people are. But what he's talking about is, is whether you're around the preacher or not. So here's the question. Would you do anything differently in a restaurant if I walked in the door? I've watched some of our members hide drinks. I've watched some of our members almost dive under tables. And by the way, I have deacons that just go out and tell me where you are, and then I just show up. We might as well get another rumor started. We've got so many that people like to start, so I might as well throw one out there for you to chew on for a while. I wonder if he really does. See, the question is, are you just behaving when you're being watched? Or are you behaving because you know it's right to behave? You say, well, you know, I'm an adult. Yeah, but you want your children to act right whether you're there or not, don't you? I mean, if they're a 7-year-old or a 17-year-old, you still expect them to live up to the rules, don't you? Don't you? Hello, do I need to have a class on parenting here? Hello? You expect them, I mean, if you tell them don't go there, don't do this, don't touch that, you, you expect them to do it in your presence or in your absence. Why? Because you're an authority figure in their life, and you expect them to follow your rules. Well, what Paul is saying is, whether I'm there or not, you work on your maturity. You work on your spiritual growth. You see, some people think if the pastor's not there, I don't have to be there. That doesn't have anything to do with it. Or if my Sunday school teacher's not going to be here this Sunday, I guess I won't go because they won't miss me. Whether your Sunday school teacher is present one week or the next doesn't have anything to do with it. You're to work out your salvation. It is, it is personal. And, and by the way, the reason some people don't grow is because they expect the pastor and the Sunday school teachers and the deacons to work out their salvation for them. My job is to work out my salvation. Your job is to work out your salvation. And so he says this is this continuous thing, this process that never ends. It's continuous. Secondly, it's my responsibility. Work out your own salvation. Now, you may want to pick your feet up here a little bit and get them off the floor because I'm about to find some toes. He didn't say work out your wife's salvation or your husband's salvation or somebody in your class that you think you're better than they are salvation. Hello? He said, you mind your own cotton-picking business. That's a southern translation of this verse. <laughs> mind your own business. I want to tell you something, folks. I have a leadership responsibility that, in, that requires me to make sure that our body is functioning like it's supposed to be, but I've got enough to work on myself without worrying about everybody else's, and so do you. I mean, truth of the matter is, we look in our spiritual mirror, we don't have time to worry about the person sitting on the left or the right of us. 
Now, we need to be concerned for them, and when they fall, we need to pick them up like Paul says in Galatians. But our number one responsibility is to work on our own walk with God, not on anybody else's. God's not going to judge you by everybody else. God's going to judge you by the standard that he set in Christ. And so I'm to work out my salvation, not dependent on, well, I'm better than this person. There's a person sitting two rows behind me. I come a lot more than they do. So what? You are to work out your salvation not based on another church member or another Christian. You are to work out your salvation based on Christ. He is the example. He's the standard. And we don't lower the bar because it makes us feel more comfortable. Work out your salvation. This is cooperating with God. You see, God designed for us to realize His full potential and intent for our lives. God wants you and I to realize the full potential and intent that he had when he saved you, when he got you on his heart. He's got a plan and a purpose for your life. And he wants you to develop that and to work at that and to strive in long with him, to cooperate with him, that that will bear fruit in your life. So look at two things. First of all, you are responsible to maximize your potential. You are responsible to maximize your potential. Verse 16, he says, In order that I may rejoice that I have not run in vain. What Paul was saying to the Philippians was, If you don't take your faith seriously, then when I stand before God, my work with you is going to have been in vain. You see, when I, when I was in youth ministry, and I did that for 15 years, when I was in youth ministry, I could always know whether my ministry was effective by if the kids stayed active in the church and continued to grow in their faith after I was gone. And if they didn't, then my work with them was in vain. Didn't matter how many sermons I preached, didn't matter how many camps I did, how many disciple nows I did, but in that particular life, my work would have been in vain because they made other choices. Brian Kelly serves on our staff. When he was in middle school, he was one of my young people. My work was not in vain with Brian. Patrick Thompson used to be the youth minister here. He was one of my young people. My work was not in vain with Patrick. Garrett Grubbs and Stephen Durbin and Ross Cook are youth ministers out of this church in churches in the area. My work was not in vain with them. But I can name some kids that my work was in vain. But they graduated from high school and they bailed out. You see, all the energy and all the time and all the prayers and all the love and all the compassion shown. The minute they got out from under mom and dad, they checked out. Paul is saying, I don't want to stand before God and know that what I did resulted in nothing. So in a sense, you could say Paul was results-oriented. In a sense, you could say that Paul kept a tab on things because he did not want what he had invested in people to be empty or invalid. That's what the word vain means, invalid or empty. And so there are four indicators of working out our salvation. And this is how you'll know if you're living up to your potential. Indicator number one is that we are blameless and innocent. Now by that you need to write blameless in the judgment of others. The others look at you and see that you are free of censure or free of them saying, well, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want anything to do with it. Or you're no different than me. 
blameless and innocent. The, the Thessalonians lived holy and righteous and blameless lives, as Paul writes to them. The word innocent has to do with our motives. In other words, that we are unmixed or unadulterated, that there's no mixture of evil, that there is purity in us, that we are blameless and innocent. Secondly, that we are above reproach or without fault, without blemish. There's nothing shameful in us. Don't ever underestimate the importance of a consistent life. A consistent life is important to God. It's important to church. It's important, important to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Don't ever underestimate the importance of consistency. You say, well, I, I'm not a star, and I'm not a, I'm not a show horse, and, and I, you know, I, I, I could never, I mean, I'm not up there. I'm, I'm not a platform person. I'm not this. But I want to tell you something, folks. The kingdom of God moves with plow horses, too. We have some show horses, but it moves mostly by plow horses who plow the ground that God has put in front of them, who are faithful to what God has called them to do, and they're dependable people. That's how it moves. And so he says we're to be above reproach, a consistent life. Listen, your friends who don't go to this church and your friends who are unchurched could care less about what happened in Refresh a year ago. What they want to know is, did it stick in you last week? You see, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you land. Anybody can get excited at a moment when exciting things are happening, but what they want to see is, yeah, okay, let me see how you're living six months from now. Let me see it over the long haul. Let me see it when it's crunch time. Let me see it when the emotion has died down. Let me see if your life is consistent then. So the world does not look at us based on events. The world looks at us based on how the process is going in our lives. Are we becoming fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ? Thirdly, appear as lights. Appear as lights. Now, this is not a deeply profound statement, but I want you to write it down in your Bible or in your notes. And I want you to think about it and chew on it this week. This is your assignment this week. And think about it as we come to the invitation time. You are the best Christian somebody knows. You're the best one they know. How are you doing? You are the best Christian somebody knows. How's your witness? How's your testimony? How's your consistency? Because for somebody, you may be the only one that they know. That will affect how you talk and how you react and how you act and how you think where you go and what you do, if you realize that for some people you're the best or the only Christian that they know. The story's told of some Montana prospectors during the gold rush of the 18th century and, uh, and uh, the 19th century, and so they discovered gold, and they, they vowed to one another they would not tell anybody that they'd discovered gold, but they had to go down and get more supplies, and they made an agreement among each other. 
If anybody shares that we have found gold, you will lose your stake in the claim. So they went down and they got the supplies and they started heading out of town and just masses of people from this little town out in Montana started following them out. And they start, as they were trying to race ahead of these people following, they're all griping at each other saying, who did you tell? You must have told somebody. You must have told somebody. How did you tell? What, when did you do this? And when they got there, the people came up to them and they said, who told you? And they said, nobody told us. We could tell by the look on your face you'd struck gold. How's the look on your face? Remember that old southern gospel song, if you're happy and you know it, notify your face? Look at the person next to you and ask them, how's the look on your face? <laughs> Go ahead. Some of, you need to look at, some of you need to wake up the person next to you. Go ahead and look at them and just, how's the look on your face right now? We are to appear as lights. We are to hold fast the word of life. To hold fast the word of life. In secular Greek, that term was used for to hold fast was used to offer wine at a banquet to a guest. We are clearly given a command here to share our faith. We are to work it out. We are to shine it out. We are to hold it out. That's what Paul says. He gives us three commands. Work it out, shine it out, hold it out. All in the book of Philippians. I love what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, if I were utterly selfish and had no care for anything but my own happiness, I'd be a soul winner. For never did I know never-ending perfect happiness until I heard for the first time of the one who had sought and found the Savior through my life. Then he says, we're to receive the grace of God, not to receive it in vain. It is possible to hear and it to be in vain. You see, God is not interested in filling up our information bank. He's interested in our information bank and our obedience walk being equally balanced. It's not just what you know, it's what you do. I am to be who I am and then to do what I'm supposed to do. And so secondly, you're to live a life pleasing to God according to His good pleasure. A life pleasing to God. And we do all this for the praise of the glory of His grace is what Paul says. We do it according to His good pleasure. You see, God does not grade us so much. Now, you're going to have to think about this one. God does not grade us so much in what we have achieved. That's not the way He grades us. As to what we were able to achieve in our lives. God's grade for you and I is not so much what we would achieve, but what we were able to achieve and we didn't live up to because we lived undisciplined lives or we lived in a backslidden condition or we didn't step up when it was time for us to step up. We will be judged not by, by well, look, I, I did this, but God will say, yeah, but I gave you the potential and the gifts and the power to live at this level. You chose to live down here. You chose to live at a lower level. Folks, listen. People join churches all the time where they can hide and where they can be uninvolved because a church will say, you join here, we won't bother you. That's not our, that's not our mission. Our mission is to present every man complete in Christ. And it is important to us as a pastor and as a staff that you become the disciple of, 
and the believer that God intends for you to become. Now, if you want to settle for being a minor league Christian, you can. But everybody in this room has the potential to be an all-star major leaguer. But you've got to decide that you're going to discipline yourself to get to that level. Because you don't get it just because your mama told you that you're a wonderful player. You've got to earn it. You have to work at it. So we work it out and we live a life that is pleasing to God. The parable of the talents tells us that God judges on the basis of opportunity and ability. And so we come to the second thing, an exhortation regarding our attitude with fear and trembling. And by the way, the whole force of this passage really falls on those words, fear and trembling. If you want to emphasize something in today, you know, like if you send an email and you do it in all caps, it's like you're shouting. You know, sometimes I just put on all caps because I'm, I'm typing so fast I don't want to take time to capitalize. I'm not shouting, I'm just lazy. But if you send an email and you do it in all caps, it's like you're shouting. If you want to emphasize something in writing, you underline it or you make it bold. In the New Testament, when you wanted to emphasize something, you put it in the sentence at the first of the sentence to draw attention to it. Fear and trembling is, he's saying, this is the attitude we're supposed to have. This is the attitude that is required. It, it, it is a cautious self-distrust. I, I am going to work at my salvation, but I'm going to remember what Paul says, let him who think he stands take heed lest he fall. Nobody has arrived. There are no Christians who have it all together. And so as I'm working out my salvation, as I'm working out my faith, I realize that I could stumble at any moment, that if I take my eyes off Jesus, that I could fail, and that I don't have it all together, but I keep pursuing the prize and the goal that is before me. And so there's this attitude that we're supposed to have. The week that Ron Dunn designed, resigned as a pastor of MacArthur Boulevard after nine years. In the 70s, MacArthur Boulevard had experienced phenomenal movement of God. The intercessory prayer ministry was operating about 160 hours out of the week, and people were being saved, and there was just a, about a two-and-a-half, three-year perpetual revival. And, and somebody came to Ron at the end and asked him this question, where do you think this church is spiritually? And this was nine years and three of those in perpetual revival and an obvious movement of God. And Ron said, I don't know where we are, but we're not nearly as far down the road as we think we are. Now, folks, I don't know where we are at Sherwood, but we're not as far down the road as we think we are. As long as people have to be begged to serve, as long as people have to be reminded to give, as long as we sit silent while the world goes to hell, and by the way, within a five-mile radius of this church, if you go from this church in five miles in any direction, there are 6,000 unchurched singles and 65,000 people unchurched have no affiliation with any church in this community on any level. 65,000. And as long as we think church is about us 
and me and how I feel and what I want. And we don't think that those people are dying every day and going to hell. We miss the point of Sherwood Baptist Church being on this ground and taking up land. We are to be his witnesses. And we need to live in fear and trembling that we would stand before God one day and he would say, just two blocks away, there was a family and you didn't even know their name. Just three miles away, there was a single adult who committed suicide and you never knocked on the door to offer her an option. You see, we've got to get about the business that God wants us to be about. We're not as far along as we think we are. And just because we had a great outpouring of God last year in Refresh does not mean we have arrived or that we are better than anybody else in the eyes of God. It means we are more accountable than anybody else in the eyes of God because of what we have experienced. And by the way, if you are here then, you're more accountable whether you're living up to it or not. Now, you can go somewhere and they'll tell you you're wonderful and your greatest thing since sliced bread. But God's going to tell you different when you face him. You just got to decide, do you want to duck from God now and face him later? Or do you want to face God now and be pleased to face him later? Either way, you're going to face him. So I'm to live my life with fear and trembling that I would do anything that would cause the gospel to be defamed. That's the attitude required. The attitude to reject is to do all things without grumbling or disputing. I would submit to you that out of 39,000 Southern Baptist churches, 38,850 of them have not read that verse in the Bible. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. You want to know how to bring revival to America? Get the gripers to shut up, and the church would have revival. Grumbling and disputing. By the way, the Old Testament word is murmur. Let's just say murmur out loud until I tell you to stop. Just say it, just say it. Murmur, 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 That's edifying, isn't it? Well, that just makes you just want to throw your hands up and praise God, doesn't it? That just builds up everybody. Now, let's look at these words that he's using here. First of all, he says grumbling or murmuring. By the way, remember, that's what cost Israel the promised land. They started griping and complaining about the way God did his business. And they, by the way, they didn't like Moses either. Somebody told me one day, he said, you know, somebody doesn't like you. I said, good, I'm in good company. They didn't like Paul. They didn't like Moses. They didn't like David. They didn't like, they had, listen, the prophets have always been the object of brickbats. Without grumbling, muttering under the breath. You want to make a note there, Exodus 14 through 17, you can see what God thinks about people who grumble. And I tell you what, I'm being nice to you. God killed them. Aren't you glad you live in the day of grace? Couldn't you just imagine? Imagine the difference it would make in a Sunday school class. Just imagine. It would just take one, just one, one Sunday school class and one person going, well, I just don't like, bam, dead. What happened? They started griping about something. Next thing I know, oh, that just, made it, just must have been their time. And right down the hall, somebody else, I just don't like, bam, they're dead on the ground. 
What happened to them? DOA, dead on arrival, died from grumbling. God killed them. Official cause. That's what God did in the Old Testament. I'm glad he doesn't do that now, but I want to tell you, his stand on grumbling and murmuring hasn't changed. He still hates it. It was because of grumbling and disbelief that they didn't get into the promised land. And I can tell you this, grumbling and murmuring has destroyed more churches in our community than any of us care to think about. I had two people tell me this week about two churches in our region that are in a squabble and in an uproar. And I thought, somebody needs to go over there and tell those people to quit calling themselves Christians and take the sign down in the front that says they're a church because they're an embarrassment to the kingdom. Grumbling and murmuring, disputing. Now, grumbling is undertones of dissatisfaction. I'm just, I don't really like this. I'm just, I'm, I'm just concerned. Hey, you, do you agree with me or not? I'm just kind of, I don't really like what's going on right here. I just really didn't like that. I just, that's undertones. But disputing is overtones of dissension. And it is a noun that comes from a verb that means to argue. Dissension. Just people that want to argue. I, 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 I used to be on the staff of the First Baptist Church of Trivial Pursuit. And we had people that come to business meetings and never would come to prayer meeting. I mean, they'd show up and all they wanted to do was argue. We had business meetings that went three and a half and four hours. I remember one business meeting that ended at a quarter till one in the morning. Well, I just know God turned to his son at his right hand and said, that's what you died for, son, right there. That's what you died for, for people to act like that in church. I am grateful to God we don't act like that in this church. And I tell you, if you don't thank God for it every time, and if you don't believe that the devil wouldn't love for us to be that way, better watch it. Because God says we are to do everything we do without grumbling and disputing. Proverbs 4.23 says in the message, keep vigilant watch over your heart. That's where life starts. Don't talk out of both sides of your mouth. Well, hey, preacher, I can't stand his guts. Don't talk out of both sides of your mouth. Avoid careless banter. White lies and gossip. You look good today. Boy, that was the tackiest dress I've ever seen in my life. Keep your eyes straight ahead. Whoa, look at her. Ignore all sideshow distractions. Watch your step, and the road will stretch out smooth before you. Look neither right nor left. Leave evil in the dust. Be good for us to go back and read Proverbs again. An exhortation regarding salvation, and then we're through. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, to will is God's purpose. To do is God's power. God's purpose is to will. God's power is to do. And in verse 12, he says that we are to work out our own salvation. And then he says in verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you. It it seems like those are contradictory statements, but they're not. They're not contradictory at all. It's a consistent teaching. First of all, he says, work it out by responding to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Now, you see, God not only gives you the dynamic, he also gives you the desire. 
God gives you the dynamic of the Spirit, but He also places the desire in you to work it out. And so we're to work it out, but it's God that's at work in us. God works in you and God works through you. And by the way, everything in salvation is a response to God. How did you get saved? Well, somebody came and talked to me about the Lord. Somebody shared uh, four spiritual laws with me. Somebody knocked on my door. Somebody did a religious survey. Yes, but God's Holy Spirit came to you at that moment and convicted you that you were a sinner because I can't convict you that you're a sinner. God's Holy Spirit convicted you and came on your heart and pressed down on you and began to say, you know, they're right what they're telling you about the fact that you need Jesus. And so what did you do? You responded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit of God in your heart. We love because He first loved us. Forgive as you have been forgiven. You see, everything in God's Word is walk in the light as He is in the light. We are responding to God. And the Holy Spirit prompts us out of His Word. We love because He first loved us. We walk in the light. We are holy because He is holy. In verse 6, He said, He who began a good work will carry it out. God doesn't have unfinished business. God's working and you're cooperating. The time is drawing near. You can just write a reference for sake of time. Romans 13, 11. Salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So I'm to work on my salvation, not only to respond to the promptings of the Spirit, but to remember that God is sovereign and I am responsible. I'm to remember that God is sovereign and I am responsible. There's, There's an interesting balance in Scripture. In fact, it's a tension in Scripture. It's one of those mysteries that God has not chosen to explain to us. It's one of those things that you can't figure out. But it's a tension that God doesn't apparently have a problem with. But it is the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. It is God who is at work in you. Therefore, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it would be just so wonderful. It would have been easier, and we'd all walked in a Spirit-filled life. If when we got saved and got filled with the Spirit, we wouldn't sin anymore, we wouldn't be tempted anymore, we wouldn't have any more doubts, we wouldn't have any more uh, fears, we'd just be like spiritual robots. We could just walk around on the same high spiritual plane. But God didn't choose to do that. He says we're to work out our salvation. And, and i got to be honest with you. It is hard to keep that in balance. It is hard to keep in balance the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. I am absolutely 100% committed to the sovereignty of God. I believe that God is sovereign. There are things that have happened that I did not understand. And I thought God's timing was terrible. But in the end, I come back and say God is sovereign. He's in charge. He's in control. He knows what's best. But see, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 and verse 13, you find both of these truths together. God's sovereignty, God is at work, work out your own salvation, man's responsibility. Work it out, for it is God who is at work in you. 
Now, you see, you can't work it out if God's not at work in you. So you've got to have both. There is human responsibility and divine enablement. And the tendency will be that we will either say, i got to do all of this on my own, and that becomes working out your salvation in your flesh. Or I'm just going to let God do it all, and that's abusing the sovereignty of God. There's a balance, and you don't need to go to either extreme. You need to live in the tension of these truths. And you say, now, which one's most important? The sovereignty of God or the responsibility of man? Well, God will answer that for us in heaven, but let, let me just give you a thought here. That's like asking which wing of the airplane is most important for us to fly, the left or the right. You've got to have both of them if you're going to fly. And some of us today are flying second class when we could be flying first class. You see, he's given us an example. He says, let this attitude be in you like was in Christ Jesus, the servant heart of Christ. And then he tells us about Christ in the first part of Philippians chapter 2. And then right out of giving us the example of Jesus Christ, he says, now here is how you're supposed to live. And so here's the test question for today. Am I pleasing God in my progress? Am I pleasing God in my progress? Am I making headway or am I sitting still? Am I moving forward in our faith? There's an old farmer who had one of those wind-up clocks like my grandfather had. I have two. My father-in-law gave them to me, and one's in my office and one's at the house, and one of them's always running slow. But this old farmer had a clock, and and he woke up one night because the clock struck 13 times. And he got all his children up and said, Kids, get up! Get up! It's later than it's ever been before. You know what? It's later for me than it's ever been before. And it's later for you. This is no time for us to be apathetic about our Christian life. This is no time for us to be lazy as Christian parents. This is no time for us to be careless and callous about our prayer life and our devotional life. This is no time for us to try to coast to glory. How are you doing on your progress? If you are graded on a final exam today, have you grown and have you applied what you've heard over the last year in such a way that there is a difference between where you were in July of 2003 and where you are spiritually in July of 2004? And if there's not growth, doctors will tell you that when your body quits growing, it does begin to start dying because your cells don't reproduce as fast as they do you're not you don't react as quickly your bones and your joints get a little stiffer and things are a little slower because the body is decaying same thing truth is there in the spiritual realm if you don't exercise your faith you'll get arthritic in your faith 
and you'll get callous and cold and hard and stiff and you won't be working out your salvation you say well that's going to require some effort yeah it does but being in physical shape and being in spiritual shape requires something of us because God has already given us the power to do it let's stand with heads bowed and eyes closed In just a moment, our staff will be here at the front. And if you are here today, and even while I was talking about those verses in Ephesians, God spoke to your heart that you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That there's never been a moment when you've responded to the quickening of the Holy Spirit that helped you to understand that you were a sinner in need of a Savior. Then today could be your day. A young man sat in this service last week just like somebody here today who came in and during the service realized that he needed to trust Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. There's somebody here today that needs to do that. A young man, a young woman, a senior adult maybe. You may be here today and you're trying to figure out where you're going to go to church. Well, you've got two choices. You can go someplace where you can be comfortable or you can go someplace where you will be stretched. We believe this is the kind of church that will stretch you. Nothing against any other church in town, but we're going to stretch you. Because we don't want you to be comfortable, because when you get comfortable, you get stiff. And when you get stiff, you get cranky. And when you get cranky, you lose your witness. And it's easy to go be comfortable, but we're asking you, is God leading you to a place that's going to stretch you to be something maybe you've never been before? If so, then these men will be down here at the front to receive you and to tell you how you can become a part of this church family. Some of us need to come today just to kneel before God and say, God, I haven't been hitting a lick at a snake at my salvation. I haven't been working on it. I haven't been praying about it. I'm not disciplined. I don't study. I don't know how to share my faith. I'm not doing anything in my faith to the level to which I know I need to be doing. And I need you to forgive me today that I'm not working on my salvation the way I need to be. I'm not cooperating with you in my Christian life the way I need to. Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you have set a high standard and a high bar for us. But it's not impossible because you never require anything of us that you do not empower us to do it. And so, Father, I pray that you take the words of this text and that you drive it to our hearts, not just for this moment, not just in these few remaining minutes of this service, but moving out of here and into our homes and our workplaces and our schools that we will pay attention to how we're living. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Choir singing. You come right now. Lord, I want more of you. Living water rain down on me. Lord,